I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know that peanut butter cups remain transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's sticks? Their wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate? I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy, and the folks at Reese's do it better than anyone. So shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you, found wherever candy is sold. We go at low tide. It might be five in the morning, it might be eight. They might be out of the water. They're just stuck on the rock. And then you just pop them off. This is Hillary. My name's Hillary Rennick, and I'm Pomo and Paiute from Northern California, from Mendocino specifically. A few years ago, an article in High Country News came out about Hillary called An Indigenous Way of Life for These California Tribes Breaks State Laws. It says in Mendocino County, guerrilla gatherers risk fines and jail time to keep food culture alive. People have chased us. People coming back and forth like shotguns. And I'm like, is this the end of my story? Nobody's going to know. What do you do, right? Like, you have a family member, and it's like, you're my only hope. This is what I want before I pass on. And then also, at the same time... You know, somebody calls the cops. So, like, you just have to hurry up. And all you're trying to do is get food. Where your family's been getting food for millennia. So, that's my food PTSD, I guess. This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. This week, we're bringing you an episode from our friends at the podcast Copper and Heat. They explore the unspoken rules and traditions of restaurants. They were recently nominated for a James Beard Award for this story about California abalone. We wanted to share it with you. Here's Copper and Heat host Katie Osuna. Abalone in recent years has become known as an expensive gourmet ingredient. This is the abalone course here at Two Michelin Star Mini Bar. uh, Abalone that's been rested. Our abalone course has slowly become a bit of a massage, sweet talks. Abalone en croute. This is a little with some of the abalone liver. Chicken and abalone. Sauce me up, chef. It's a luxury usually reserved for fine dining restaurants. But clearly, as what we've heard from Hillary, that hasn't always been the case. Well before abalone started showing up on modern Californian tasting menus, before it was an icon of the California coast, it was eaten by indigenous tribes all up and down the west coast of what is now the United States, as well as different cultures across the Pacific. So our story begins before white folks and other immigrants showed up on the west coast. In what is now the state of California, it is estimated there were between 300 to 700,000 indigenous folks living in over 500 groups. Many of them were the only ones harvesting abalone for various purposes. But then things changed. Europeans and Russians came to the West Coast of America. This is Anne. Anne Velisis, and I'm an author and environmental historian. 
She literally wrote the book on abalone, and she says that the start to the story, before any of the newcomers to the U.S. started fishing or eating abalone, they came for sea otters. And they were looking to find these beautiful, rich pelts from animals up and down the coast to trade globally. And unfortunately, they decimated these animals. They nearly annihilated them and started to trigger unwittingly this transformation underwater, which resulted in abalone becoming super abundant in a way that they hadn't been before. So when white Americans and other immigrants showed up for the gold rush, abalone were everywhere. And one of the groups of people that came in search of gold were Chinese immigrants. On the other side of the Pacific, abalone were regarded as a luxury reserved for the most wealthy. And when these Chinese immigrants, probably poorer fishermen, showed up and saw so many abalone, it must have been a totally sweet eureka moment. Maybe even better than finding gold because they realized that they had an extraordinary opportunity to start exporting abalone back to China. And that's what they did. They pretty much had to export abalone because there wasn't much of a market for them in the U.S. at the time. Because there was so much racial hostility at the time and racial animosities, Americans at first kind of regarded it as a denigrated food. One reporter described the abalone meat as a dirty saffron color shot with a sickening red a more leathery mass of livid-looking nastiness it would be difficult to conceive of or imagine. And so because the Chinese immigrants were the only ones who knew how to eat abalone, it was kind of a niche that they were able to exploit. And they did it with tremendous skill and knowledge. They were great fishermen and great entrepreneurs and really got this, this industry going. The Chinese immigrants were the first to turn abalone fishing into an industry in the U.S., and it was incredibly successful. At the height of the abalone export in the 1880s, they were processing about 40 tons of abalone, making it a multi-million dollar industry. However, because abalone before the Chinese immigrants arrived had been so super abundant and people had regarded their abundance as sort of the natural state of the coast, their removing of huge numbers of abalone came to be regarded by the newcomers as, I mean, it looked like plunder because they were taking all these animals and the shells were piling up on the beaches. And, you know, it was a time when Americans were becoming concerned about conservation because we had already decimated the bison and passenger pigeons and the salmon on the East Coast. People were starting to think about conservation. So there was that element, but there was also this tremendous noxious racism of that time. And so in the absence of any fishing regulations, because California was still kind of the frontier, the way people addressed this issue was to basically try to exclude the Chinese. And Congress passed the Exclusion Acts of the 1880s that eventually barred the Chinese from being able to enter California. And so it really put a kibosh on it and ended that first abalone fishery. So as the 1800s wrapped up and we moved into the early 1900s, two things started happening with abalone. And the first was that tourism started to become more prevalent in California. As more tourists came to California, they became intrigued by the beautiful shell of the abalone. There was eventually this interest in eating them in chowders, and then eventually there was an interest in hunting them yourself. People didn't know how to prepare abalone, and that became part of the mystique of this food. 
As tourism in California grew, so did the iconic image of the abalone. A group of writers and poets known as the Carmel Bohemians, including the most famous one was Jack London, but also Mary Austin, George Sterling. They moved from San Francisco and went to Carmel. And gathering abalone became not only kind of a bohemian way to find and gather food, but also it was literally an inspiration for them to go diving into the ocean and get this animal that you could just pull out of its shell and pound on the beach and and eat it there together with friends. So that was the first thing that was happening at the turn of the century. Abalone was becoming a niche food item that was intriguing to white Americans, in particular tourists. But domestic demand for the shellfish was still not that prevalent. So once the Chinese export fishery was shut down... Japanese fishermen showed up around Monterey and kind of like the Chinese fishermen about 40 years before, noticed the abundance of abalone. And they, too, had this tremendous culture of appreciating abalone. Some Japanese marine biologists and entrepreneurs showed up in California and started working on developing an abalone export industry as well, kind of an echo of what had happened with the Chinese. Only they were bringing new technology. They started using hard hat dive suits and taking abalone from deeper waters. So they were the first ones who pioneered that technology in California. And not surprisingly, they too would come up against tremendous racial animosity. In 1913, there were conversations about how do we do better fishing regulations? How do we conserve abalone? But the solution that was picked by the legislature was just to ban abalone export. And the idea was to just exclude Japanese fishermen from being able to do their work. These two things were happening. The rise of abalone as an iconic food popular amongst tourists and bohemians, and then the shutdown of the Japanese abalone export. So all of a sudden, there were all of these abalone being fished and nowhere to sell them. In comes what some might call the first California celebrity chef. His name was Ernest Dolter. He had a restaurant in Monterey. And because he was close to where the Japanese fishermen were gathering and drying abalone, he became very acquainted with what they were doing and found it fascinating that Americans didn't eat this food that was so prized by the Japanese. And he started experimenting in his restaurant, Cafe Ernest. And he's a German fellow, so he tried recipes that were similar to the German Wiener Schnitzel. He would pound the abalone and dredge it in egg and breadcrumbs and then fry it in butter. And he ended up coming up with this recipe for abalone fillets that was delicious. And he, as a window again to this tremendous racism at the time, he started calling himself the discoverer of abalone as a white man's delicacy. Because he realized, gosh, if I can convey this food as you know, food for connoisseurs of excellent seafood, that's how we're going to make the market. So he he called himself the abalone king, and he really set about making abalone his specialty and a prized food. And it worked. The fair had everything. It so happened that right after the abalone fishery was shut down in California and he had to find a domestic market. The World's Fair of that time, called the Pan-Pacific Exposition, was happening in San Francisco. It was the most wonderful thing that ever happened to San Francisco. And so he and some Japanese fishermen who were working with another American entrepreneur decided to try to introduce 
abalone to the larger world through this exposition. They brought up abalone. They had kind of a seafood emporium section where they were serving seafood. And in particular, they called abalone the aristocrat univalve and tried to, you know, make it something super special and a super Epicurean type of food. And millions of people came through and got a chance to sample the abalone during that exposition. And the bottom was so beautiful, kelp growing and, and wherever there was rocks, there was all kinds of marine growth. It's an entirely different world. And I never regretted once the fact that I had to work and make a living at that. You're hearing a 2011 interview with Roy Hattori. I was born in Monterey, about a half a block from the entrance to the aquarium now. But that was in March the 7th, 1919. He was a Japanese-American abalone diver who first went underwater in 1937. Most of the residents in Monterey were fishing families and came almost from the same prefecture. So they made a very close-knit community. At that time, in 1937, the boats were all equipped with crews of four to five and had one diver per boat. I think there were about 12 boats operating out of Monterey. The boats were generally coming in with loads of up to 200 dozen abalone per one week's work. Roy passed away in 2011, so this interview was one of the very last recordings we have of his experiences. And even at that time, he was one of the few Japanese-American divers still alive to share stories from the early to mid-1900s, which turned out to be a pretty pivotal time for abalone in California, because the domestic market was continuing to grow while technology was helping make harvest more efficient. And though Japanese and Japanese-American fishers dominated the abalone market, specifically in Monterey, it was becoming increasingly white. And then, the U.S. government dealt another blow to the abalone industry. I just loved the water, and I spent all of my life right here, right next to the ocean, and I can't imagine ever being any distance from it except when we had a forced evacuation and were put into government-built concentration camps. Roy and his family, along with other people of Japanese descent, were forced into internment camps at the start of World War II. As Anne writes in her book, Roy explained he lost his boat, his livelihood, his dignity, and his belief that America stood by its words of freedom for all. When Roy finally returned to diving in Monterey, he returned to a very different landscape than he left. So much so that he didn't actually go back to the abalone industry. There were these two parts of how we thought of abalone. On one side, they were a commodity that could be exported initially and then could be sold in this economy that supplied cities. And on the other hand was this vision of abalone as an icon, the two 
fed into each other, you know, kind of the mystique of the abalone that derived from that recreational experience totally fueled the demand in the restaurant. It just was much easier to be able to go into a restaurant and and eat abalone. The years during World War II had changed the abalone industry. Japanese fishers came back to more competition and less abalone. In that time, recreational and sports fishing also took off, as well as the popularity of abalone dishes in restaurants up and down the coast. There was increased tension between the sports fishers and the commercial fishers as the stock of abalone dwindled, and there was a whole lot of finger-pointing at each other. By 1957, there were 10 times as many commercial divers as there were in the 30s, and harvest was at an all-time high, with more than 5 million pounds harvested. But things were changing. Those sea otters that were initially part of the ecosystem made a rebound, and they started eating abalone too. And then we started to have some ecological stressors hit, more intense El Ninos and disease, all these things together. You know, like it's one thing to to fish for an animal, but to overfish and then have all these stressors on an animal, it makes it, they just basically couldn't keep up with the demand. Though divers were noticing less abalone and harvest dipped a little bit after the 1957 peak, abalone harvest numbers stayed relatively stable throughout the 60s. But then, because of both natural and human-made forces, the population hit a sharp decline. And as the harvest was less, the prices started to go up. As abalone get rarer and rarer, they get more and more expensive. A black market opens up. And the demand was largely still coming from individuals and restaurants up and down the coast of California. And so you have people that are poaching abalone, taking more than is allowed. And so people, I mean, it was like going out and just getting free money, you know. And unfortunately, it became almost impossible to figure out a solution. After the break, we hear what happens when indigenous communities are left out of conversations about their own food. And we visit a modern abalone farm. Stick around. And now, a delicious word from our sponsors. Mm-mm, it's very good. In the Pashman household, we're already big fans of Tillamook shredded cheese. In fact, I used it in developing many recipes in my cookbook. And now I'm getting into their ice cream. Tillamook ice cream is made with more cream, so you get smooth and dreamy scoops each time. You may not realize it, but this is why a lot of the store-bought ice cream doesn't taste the same as what you get in in an ice cream parlor. But with Tillamook, they don't skimp on the cream. These people know dairy, okay? Tillamook makes a great, rich vanilla ice cream with real crushed vanilla bean seeds. They have an Oregon strawberry, sweet strawberry ice cream with ripe Oregon strawberry pieces. The one that I really love is the mudslide flavor, a smooth chocolate ice cream with a ribbon of rich fudge and chocolatey chips. You want to move the spoon around to get fudgy and chocolatey chips and the ice cream all in the same bite each time, and it's just so, so nice. And like I said, I just trust Tillamook when it comes to dairy. They make over 200 different dairy products, and the brand is farmer-owned and led by dairy experts. Find Tillamook ice cream near you at Tillamook.com. That's T-I-L-L-A-M-O-O-K.com. The weather's warming up. Have you nailed down your summer travel plans yet? I can tell you, we're working on ours and things are booking up, which is why you should be thinking about Norwegian Cruise Line. They have been raising the standards of cruising for more than 55 years. Let me tell you, when you cruise with NCL, you get award-winning specialty restaurants, immersive entertainment, and the most thrilling experiences at sea. Now, look, one of the great things about cruises in general is that you can visit and explore all kinds of different destinations, all with the ease of unpacking your bag just once. But Norwegian Cruise Line... 
They take cruising to another level and they take food to another level. With no set dining and entertainment times and no formal dress codes, you have the flexibility to design your ideal vacation. They have an incredible variety of truly authentic and fresh dining and bar experiences complemented by exceptional service. Listen to this. There are up to eight complimentary and nine specialty dining options per ship and up to 23 bar and lounge options. Come see why NCL's guest first philosophy means exceptional service and unforgettable memories. Book your next vacation at ncl.com. This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. We have a dog. Her name is Sasha. She's almost four. She's a standard poodle. She's black and fluffy and soft and very adorable. And when we first got her, we took her to like this puppy kindergarten training class. The whole family went and, you know, they're teaching how to use the treats and all this. The trainer watched Sasha for a bit and said, hmm, she's very food motivated. And my daughter, Emily, turned to me and said, she's a Pashman. (laughs) And so she is food motivated. And that's why we make a point of feeding Sasha high quality pet food. Founded in Hereford, Texas, Merrick has been crafting high-quality dog food for over 30 years. Real is Merrick's recipe, so they always use deboned meat, fish, or poultry as the number one ingredient. Now, let me tell you something. When it's dinner time, Sasha is motivated, okay? She is highly motivated to come in from patrolling the backyard at dinner, to get up off the couch. Whatever she's doing, she will drop it and come running. Check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn best buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast, they drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine. And yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. And Bogle Vineyards has so many different kinds of wine. Whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. they got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing, with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Pepin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Pepin says it's okay, then it's okay. And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food-friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. You know, a couple weeks ago, we did something a little bit out there for our show. We asked ChatGPT to write an episode of The Sporkful. And I'd say we got mixed results. So, Sal, what makes Joe's Pizza so special? Well, I think it's a combination of things. We use the freshest ingredients, we make our dough fresh every day, and we cook our pies in a coal-fired oven. But most importantly, we treat every customer like family. Wow, that's such a good cliche. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's all the things that you say if you're like, you have a good pizza spot. (laughs) Right, right. I also talked with Bettina McAlintal, a senior reporter at Eater, about what ChatGPT's attempt at a stinky immigrant lunchbox memoir tells us about food writing today. That one's up now. Check it out. Okay, back to California abalone. And because of the gold rush, Congress did not ratify our treaties. Here's Hillary again, the member of the Pomo tribe you heard at the beginning of the episode. So we do not have an official tribal take in California. We're not allowed to gather anymore because California created a no-take zone, which basically criminalized 
indigenous subsistence. I'm not sure if that was an inadvertent thing. As I studied the history of abalone, indigenous people were really not part of the conversation at all. They were kind of put into the category with people who were recreationally fishing, but the way they interact with abalone is different than recreation. When the Chinese showed up and there were so many abalone on the West Coast, you know, at that point, indigenous Californians had been brutally removed and their culture had been disrupted. In my tribe, 90% of our people between like 1840 and 1880 were just gone. Like whole families just gone, massacred. And I know some people say, oh, well, you know, smallpox, so sad. I'm like, no, it wasn't smallpox. It was intentional, <laughs> like intentional breakdown of our Native American families. Like we were hunted to death and, and there was bounties put on us. So when I gather, it's nowhere near the numbers that have historically gathered. In the 1880s, commissioners were sent to California to negotiate treaties with tribes. These treaties were submitted to Congress by President Fillmore, but then blocked in the Senate, unbeknownst to the tribes. This meant that the tribal people were not federally recognized and therefore left very vulnerable to the brutality of white settlers. It also meant that they lost a lot of bargaining chips or negotiating power when it came to their traditional subsistence like harvesting abalone. So from the very beginning of the settlement of California, tribes have been intentionally excluded, and that extends to the regulation of abalone. Only very recently, like in 2015, did the state of California really start to formally bring tribes into conversations about management of abalone for fishing. So tribes are now invited to participate in a way they never were before. But it's, of course, tragic because in some ways it's, I mean, it's not, I hope it's not too late. When legislators throughout the 1900s were intentionally excluding tribes or lumping them in with recreational fishers, they were missing some really essential knowledge of abalone that members of California tribes, like Hillary and her family, have been keeping alive for generations. So... If you're looking at a place and you're going to stay there like <laughs> generations, thousands of years, you're going to look at the landscape differently. We still go to the same spots we've went to for generations. I go where my grandpa showed me as a little precocious child and he would tell me all these stories. And I just think it's so beautiful that I could go and sit on a rock that my great-great-grandparents did and I could eat their same food and really thank them for this life and this knowledge. So for a whole century, the late 1800s to the late 1900s, all of these decisions were being made in regards to the abalone population. And frankly, the decisions were being made from a very narrow perspective. And ultimately, it wasn't enough. So that, you know, gets us to the late 90s. There's not enough abalone for commercial fishery, and the fisheries shut down. And then 20 years later, in 2017, because of more environmental stressors, there's not enough abalone for a recreational fishery. And that fishery gets shut down, too. But 
that brings us back to the top of the episode and Hillary getting the cops called on her while gathering traditional foods. People have chased us. People coming back and forth like shotguns. And I'm like, is this the end of my story? In California, you know, a lot of folks love their view shed, right? The famous California view shed. What does that mean? Many times it means they don't want to see Native people. (laughs) Now, nice homes are built. (laughs) And they don't want to see the Indians on the beach, giant fish. Since the tribal treaties weren't ratified by Congress, and there isn't a separate license for tribal people to gather, it's caused some tension between tribal gatherers and abalone recreational or sports fishers. The tribal folks, for the most part, have been left out. But I also don't think we should have ever been included, if at all, in in recreational. I think there should be a separate either tribal ceremonial take or an exemption or an exclusion. And then how that would look, because quite honestly, it is so hostile. A lot of the recreational fishers are in conflict with the tribal fishers. They don't understand, right? Because recreational fishers being so mad, you know, why do you guys get to go out there? What are you doing? You know, I'm a tax paying citizen. Who are you? So this is our farm. It's it's only about eight acres. We have seawater intakes that are about 1,600 feet offshore, a pipeline that lays on the seafloor, goes to a pump, which is right on the shore, and we pump from about 40 feet deep up to these two head tanks, which we're standing in front of now, and the, you can hear the water dumping into the, into the head tanks here. So this this is, is Doug. Uh, my name's Doug. I'm the... Uh, general manager and a partner of the cultured abalone farm located on the coast between Santa Barbara and Point Conception. Cultured abalone is one of only three abalone farms left in California, and they're the largest. My wife likes to joke that I should be marketing myself more aggressively as the number one abalone (laughs) farmer in the USA. (laughs) It hasn't always been that way. There used to be a whole lot more. Late 80s, early 90s, I think more actively, a general acknowledgement that, uh uh-oh, we may have not managed this correctly. So abalone starts to thin out, and there's a general sort of acceptance that, hmm, maybe abalone farming would be a way to address this shortfall between abalone supply and the hard decisions we need to make as resource managers. And so abalone farming was, for a time, pretty, pretty widely encouraged by the coastal managers in California. There was, at one point, something like 30 permitted abalone production facilities on the California coast. Abalone farms in California have had a pretty wild trajectory. There were about 30 in the early 90s, but only 14 made it to 98, and 8 in 2004, and then only 4 in 2017. We're down to just a couple of us now, and they haven't issued a new permit in like over 30 years. The slow-growing nature of abalone makes it an expensive endeavor, so that is one thing that could make it tricky for farms to stick around. However, Doug also points to the difficulty of getting through the permitting process in the state of California. But there's definitely not a lack of demand for abalone. 
there's enough demand for sure. You know, we could probably support more farms. You know, honestly, we could have more of us and I would welcome it. You know, I have no, I have no vested interest in trying to keep the door closed for others. Where is their product going? Who's buying it? Most of our product goes either to direct to a restaurant or to a wholesaler that's going direct to a restaurant. This abalone is not super frequently prepared at home. We sell a bit of it now, but I wouldn't say it's very much. I'd say it's 5% of our sales. Most of our product goes into the Chinese and Korean live seafood market. Most of our product is sold in metropolitan L.A. and greater L.A. and, and San Francisco and South San Francisco. And the price? Retail costs on those will range anywhere from about $6 to, you know, maybe $10 per piece at maybe your more, I'll just go ahead and say bougie or little like a market, you know, that so, but they're typically sold whole live in the shell. But yeah, it's, it's going to, it's always going to carry a bit of a cost because of the time it takes to get to market and the labor and the and the electricity and the, the work that's invested in, in getting them. They primarily sell these little 100 gram abalone, which are just about three or four inches in size. But they do save a few big guys, more like what used to be harvested wild on the California coast. And they're like seven or eight inches. It's called the Balthazar. And we, we upcharge for those. A whopping $250 because they don't exist in the marketplace and people are people are stoked about them. They, they they we're sold out actually right now until until probably about Christmas. In a funny twist, though cultured abalone used to export their abalone, they stopped doing it years ago. We haven't sold to Japan since 2008. California had repealed the export ban back in 1971 as environmental conditions were causing abalone to be smaller and tougher. It was thought that, in order to keep the industry going, they could dry the tougher abalones and export them to China, where the market for dried abalone was strong. But now, the market is much more competitive overseas. And we can sell it all domestically. The domestic market for abalone is much less competitive, and demand is still there. Even though abalone isn't available in every restaurant on the coast or open to recreational divers, it's still a highly valued part of the California dining culture. And the market for abalone is strong. But since it's no longer available wild, abalone's value as an ingredient has changed. The leap to fine dining, you know, is probably a, a byproduct of the iconic nature of its history as, as something that has been foraged of scarcity. And the fact that it's not the most straightforward thing in the world in terms of technique and prep you know, that it has its idiosyncrasies that you need to abide in order to come up with a, you know, well-executed end product, you know. It's not lost on me that my roots of interest in aquaculture were really driven by serving communities where there was a protein deficit and being a teacher and seeing kids that came from food insecure families. And I've always wanted to get back to that. And I love my abalone and I think I'm, I'm incredibly lucky to occupy this little page in the history of the way that humans use abalone. But it's not, I don't think it's likely to be people's food again in California. It's always gonna be 
it's always going to be a nostalgia buy for the people that can afford it. I worry about fetishizing the food too much. I mean, I think it's wonderful. I love local foods that connect us to place. I love that part of our culture. And yet, if we fetishize particular foods too much, we put so much stress on them. And so how do we find that balance? The story of abalone in California isn't unique. From being seen as a denigrated food associated with the people of color to an iconic fetishized food for affluent white folks. Other ingredients like corn, salmon, or quinoa have a pretty similar story. And restaurants play a big role in the way certain ingredients become trendy. You don't have to look much further than the trend of foraging. When I grew up, people used to make fun of us for eating traditional foods. Even in our basket weavers, I've seen a little bit of that where, you know, you take time out to teach a few people something and they think it's cool. So then they post it on their page as if they did all that, but they were just hanging out for five, 10 minutes, right? What is the difference between actually, truly living that life versus looking like you live that life, which could be trendy? So I eat abalone primarily now, like more ceremonial. So when we have funerals, we honor them with a feast of the landscape. We have abalone, we have salmon, we have deer, we have seaweed, we have acorn mush, we have all the the berries and the roots and the shoots that are all around us. Completing that circle of that life and respecting that life. After we eat the abalone, we put the shells on our graves. So a lot of our tribal graveyards have abalone shells on them. They help complete that journey. I still gather our traditional foods. Until I have my elders tell me not to, right, basically. They always tell me they're so proud. They're so proud. There's a lot of grandchildren. There's a lot of great-grandchildren. There's hardly anybody still gathering. And, and communing at our same places, living in our same places that we have for millennia. How important that is to keep that spirit alive in all of those places. And to respect, because we just don't take too. Like, we always say a prayer, or we'll leave a song when you sing to your food and what that does to you in your own healing. We start to learn everything that you do that you put inside of you, your food, your water and everything, and how it affects you, your body, mind and soul, like, and just how you become a whole human and how important it is. Food is completely healing. That was an episode of the podcast Copper and Heat, hosted by Katie Osuna. You can learn more at copperandheat.com. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Next week on the show, I talk with comedian, podcaster, and author Jamie Loftus about her new book, Raw Dog, The Naked Truth About Hot Dogs. Jamie went on a cross-country road trip in search of the best hot dogs, and she'll share her findings with us, plus all of her opinions about bun infrastructure and the all-important hot dog snap. While you wait for that one, check out our recent episodes about how ChatGPT deals with food writing and Jelly's significance in black music. 
The episode of Copper and Heat was produced by Katie Osuna and Rachel Palmer. Scoring, sound design, and story editing by Ricardo Osuna. Mixing and mastering by Adrian Lilly. The Sporkful is produced by me along with senior producer Emma Morgenstern and producer Andres O'Hara. Our engineer is Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Nora Ritchie and Colin Anderson. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Alexis Ruff from Burbank, California, reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. At Rural First, we're the leader in rural construction loans because we don't work here. We work out here. We live rural, which means we know just what you need to build rural. Our dedicated team of loan specialists works with you throughout the construction process. And with our digital tool, you can manage your project all in one place. That's how Rural First gets you closer to what matters. Rural First is a registered trademark of Farm Credit Mid-America, NMLS 407249, equal housing lender, loan subject to approval and eligibility. Other terms and conditions may apply. Visit RuralFirst.com for more details. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.